0: Remember to celebrate milestones as you prepare for the road ahead. This is the Waters and Harvey Show. I'm Darren Waters, and I'm Marcus Harvey, and it's great to join all of you here again. And interestingly, Marcus and I can actually truly say this time that we are joining you from the studio at Blue Ridge Public Radio. Marcus, this feels kind of strange. It's quite bizarre.
1: It's been over a year, a year and a half since we've actually recorded physically in a studio, and now the studio here has been uh, renovated. So uh, we're,
0: I'm having to reacclimate to. <laughs> (laughs) What is a very snazzy-looking environment. It does. It feels really good to be sitting across the table from my brother uh, rather than looking at him on the screen. Um, (laughs) We have turned our, uh, for the past two and a half years, I guess, Marcus, we Mm -hmm. turned our uh, offices, our own offices at our Mm -hmm. homes into the studio uh, for the show. But it feels really interesting, and it feels really good to be here in the studio, and we're celebrating a milestone. This is the 100th show of the Waters and Harvest Show. I've got to ask you, Marcus, how does that feel to you?
1: Yeah, it's, 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 it's hard to believe. And I have to back up for a moment and say that now that I'm, I'm in, in the studio again with you face-to-face, I'm not so sure I prefer this. I think I prefer, prefer seeing you over the screen rather than being <laughs> with you face-to-face. I'm not sure I like you that much. No, I'm kidding. No, it's, um, it's difficult to believe that the show has um, has reached this point. And I, I, for me, it reminds me of or harkens back to a point I made – Previously about how the conversations that the show seeks to um cultivate and nurture um, just continue those conversations continue to grow organically and evolve uh, and I think what we're seeing with the arrival of the of the one hundred show is um an apex point, mm-hmm. I would call mm-hmm. it, in the evolution of the conversations that we've been staging on this show, and so, and I, I think it's appropriate that we're at this point, um, mm-hmm. and I think this is it, this is an opportunity, to um, to think about, you know, how how to shape these conversations moving forward. Mm-hmm. And
0: I think, Marcus, what is really f- fun about uh, the opportunity to do this show because we're, y- you all in the audience are going to see as, we, as this show unfolds, we're going to talk about some of those past shows, right? We're yeah. going to kind of revisit them. But we had the opportunity, and many of you have already seen, we had the opportunity to have a conversation with Thomas Calder who's a writer with the Mountain Express. Um, Thomas reached out to me. Thomas and I have had a relationship for a while. Um, Every now and then, if he has some historical question, he would call to uh, talk to me about that. And so Thomas reached out and he said, look, you guys are getting ready to celebrate the 100th episode of the show. How about sitting down for a conversation? So it's interesting to be in conversation with Thomas because it kind of turned the tables on the two of us. Mm -hmm. Usually, you know, Marcus, (laughs) we are interviewing people, but this time Thomas was interviewing us. We have the pleasure of having Thomas in the the studio with us today. He's going to join us on this conversation in a little while just to talk about, um, you know, how did that conversation with us go? I actually feel like he got more than he bargained for, but (laughs) I had a really good time kind of reminiscing about why we started the show, what the purpose was. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. But one of the things we got to talk to uh, Thomas about was that the show didn't actually originate Initially at Blue Ridge Public mm-hmm. Radio, um, it originated at another low-powered uh, radio station here in Asheville, yeah. North Carolina, uh, WRES, with Elder Hayes, yeah. the late Elder Hayes, who's no longer with us. And I think, Marcus, if I remember correctly, we did about forty-five shows over there. That's right. right? That's right. So, so a yeah. lot of shows.
1: Yes. Yeah. So I guess technically we've done far more than a hundred shows. You're right. But yeah, when I think back on our days at WRES, um, I, I remember those shows fondly, um, in part because. We were very much um getting our sea legs, so to speak, and trying to determine whether or not this, this nation project that you and I kind of imagined together was viable. Mm-hmm. Um and I also remember um the the trepidation that we that we would experience trying to carry an hour-long show mm-hmm. <laughs> right early in the show's life. Uh but you know, I, I think um I remain grateful to the late Elder Hayes for being willing to to give us a shot to to give the show a shot right to to use WRES as kind of a, a a guinea pig platform uh for what you and I um were imagining as far as this show and the kinds of of conversations that it seeks to inaugurate and and sort of guide and so again you know w- without WRES uh without the um without the 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 um, generosity of, of Elder Hayes. There would be no Waters and Harvey show, I don't think, um, as, as
0: we know it today. So, Marcus, I look, I think back and I uh, look back over the past and the yeah. shows that we've done, and I have to say it's a compelling body of work. Yeah. For this show, we tried to go through and do some selections of shows that, you know, maybe are our favorites, are shows that we'd like to pull from. You know, in a minute, we'll get into a little bit more of that. Mm-hmm. But it was tough. It's tough when I go yeah. back through that whole list, especially the list of the shows that we've done here at Blue Ridge Public radio, mm-hmm. it was tough to kind of make decisions about, okay, yeah. which one stands out more than another. Mm-hmm. But all of the conversations have been just, I think, just rich and rewarding. One of the things that has been most rewarding for me in this project is the deepening of our relationship with each yeah. other. You yeah. and I did not know each other uh, yeah. what prior to what, I guess, two thousand uh, at least 13. 2013, mm-hmm. and yeah. uh, we both landed here in the city at the same time Mm -hmm. um, as professors and we just developed a relationship thought we would kind of take it on the road a little bit because (laughs) the private conversations i i found them to be compelling um they were deepening you know kind of my curiosity about a number of different things that you would bring up and throw into those conversations and i thought look you know we also need to take the work that we did as professors in the academy and try to speak to a larger audience there Mm -hmm. is i think um there's I I deeply value Arkansas, uh, someone who's trained as a pure academic working in the room, in the classroom with students, uh, working in my field, spending my time talking to my colleagues who are in the field, writing for those colleagues. But there was something that you and I both said Uh, was that was compelling about taking it to a larger audience to Mm -hmm. the public because there's some interesting things to happen in the classroom There's some interesting things to happen in the so-called ivory tower So we Mm -hmm. just said hey, we're gonna take this show on the road and um, and do the work I guess what you would call it public intellectuals. Yeah, absolutely. And
1: uh, you know, I I would I would say um, For me uh, kind of echoing what you just said a moment ago Perhaps the most rewarding um, aspect of this of this collaborative project has been the deep, for me has been the deepening of our friendship um, and of our relationship as 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 colleagues um, and as scholars. but but also uh, along with that for me, I, I really appreciated the opportunity to to well two things, two more things. one to recognize the importance of finding ways to translate um, my own research uh, what I teach, what I write about, to a broader audience, right? Because it's, it's very easy to lose sight of that importance if one restricts oneself to the walls of the of the sort of ivory tower. So the importance of recognizing that that uh, that work, and then two. Um, uh, the importance of cultivating the skills required to do that <laughs> right so it was one thing to recognize you know that hey it 's important to it 's important that the work that i do that the work that you do be translatable beyond um, our respective guilds but it's another thing entirely i think to to figure out how to actually execute that mm-hmm. um especially in a context like this right. uh, that that can be rather unforgiving <laughs> <laughs> in my opinion so you're, you're so pretty. yeah i mean so there are multiple levels that uh um on which i've um or yeah through which i've benefited um uh, from my work with you, and I, I I look forward to seeing what the future holds. Yeah, I yeah. do,
0: too, Marcus. And I think, too, that another thing that has been, I think, compelling about this work is not only the deepening of our relationships, our relationship, which has, but it's also what we've learned, not only from each other, but from the people that we've been in conversation with. Mm -hmm. Um, It's added to that notion that conversations matter. Um, We have been working uh, with with the William Friday Fellowship uh, for Human Relations for a while with that team. Dr. Meredith Dostra has been a frequent guest on the show, and part of what that whole fellowship has been trying to do is to put people Mm -hmm. in relationship with each other and making conversations central to that and Sometimes we're not very good at being in conversation, listening, and then engaging conversations with each other. But this kind of uh, this uh, doing the show forces you to kind of do that. So you get a chance to know people mm-hmm. more fully. You get a chance to see what is kind of making them think. And then you also mm-hmm. learn a lot from those conversations. So I have been recently kind of tackling a book that was introduced to me by Dr. Doster and the work that we've been doing with the William Brody Fellowship uh, by Sherry. Turkle which is called reclaiming conversations the power of talk in the digital age it is interesting in this book that she she makes the argument that people are think that because we're in the digital age we can communicate through text messages, we communicate through Facebook. We communicate through, um, you know, all types of other means, emails and those things. Email drives me crazy because it's like it's constantly coming. It's like a hamster wheel. But the, um, but what she said that while we feel that we're more connected to each other, that the research is actually showing that we're not. Mm-hmm. We're we're less engaged. And in her book, she she talks about families that no longer really sit around the dinner table table with each other to be in conversations about maybe. Be issues that the family is dealing with, but they are finding it easier or uh, uh, at least easier to kind of text each other, you know, when they're kind of in conversation or if there's something they disagree on, I'll do it in text and not face-to-face. And there's something that you lose through that. And one of the things that Sherry Turkle talks about in this book is that we are not learning to empathize with each other. Mm-hmm. When you have to be in face-to-face with each other, you really do develop that sense of empathy, I think, which is something that's important for us. Yeah, and it's
1: interesting that the you, way you talk, you talk, talk about um, conversation, uh, in the very last class meeting I had with one of the upper-level, upper-division um, courses that I taught this past semester... From my department in religious studies, uh, I had a kind of revelation toward the end of the semester that I shared with students about the nature of scholarship itself, right? Which I think, in some ways, demythologizes scholarship. But basically, what I realized is that um, for for all of the technicalities and sophistication that goes, uh, you know, that that go into uh, scholarship, at base, scholarship really is a conversation. Mm-hmm. That's really what it is, right I mean, even at the research level i mean you're when you're when you're when you're seeking out sources you're engaging sources you're interacting with sources you you're evaluating sources that's the kind of conversation mm-hmm. right when you when you reflect in writing on those sources and then create a formal um, document that that is a kind of of conversational exercise mm-hmm. right where you are um in relationship with uh, the sources, the scholars that have sort of helped you arrive at at whatever your current project Mm -hmm. is. And so, um, yeah, I I don't know that we we ever really get away from from conversation as a central trope or practice um, in human relationship. And, you know, to Turkle's concern here um, around digital communication, um, I I can't I, I agree with her, although I can't I can't necessarily pinpoint what it is about text messaging or emailing that seems to um, corrode (laughs) our capacity for empathy. But I think she's right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, But I don't know. Maybe it has to do with the convenience (laughs) of texting, right? Because as as someone who, you know, students who have have taken classes with me know this, I'm very candid in talking about how... um, sort of shy I was as a college student, how averse I was to -to face-to-face contact, (laughs) um, any opportunity to be by myself, you know, and be away from crowds or from having to deal face-to-face with with anybody, I took it. so I, I can understand how the the convenience of text messaging can kind of be seductive to people who are introverted or to people who are, who are extroverted as well um, but beyond that you know i'm not, I'm not really sure w- what accounts for the the negative impact that digital communication seems to have mm-hmm. on empathy, and also you know the, the reality is that you know digital communication isn't going anywhere all right it's not so the question is do we do we reimagine what empathic conversation looks like across digital platforms mm-hmm. or or do we do we kind of pull back a little bit mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. From digital communication in favor of reclaiming, I guess, the old school, <laughs> that's a old th- school this way. model, right, the old that's school face to face model, right? Yeah, right, where you have to deal with people's eyes, their faces, their
0: their body language, you know, so on and so forth. Right. And, I, you know, Marcus, I, you know, your your last point, I think, is uh, it really sticks out in my mind. I, I think that there's something valuable about being in contact in face to face conversation with each other. Um, uh, there's a lot that's lost in the written word sometimes when you're t- Texting things, and but I, I think too here, Marcus, that we've not only been in conversation with each other and with the guests that we've had on the show in these face-to-face conversations, we've been in conversation with the audience as well, and it's been great to to get your feedback, uh, to hear from you. Uh, we get emails. I know recently you got a pretty lengthy email, Marcus, from someone about something that you had addressed in one uh, the one of the shows that we did. Um, I've gotten numerous emails from people. From time to time when I was still here, um, living here in in Asheville, you know, I've taken on this new role, which moved me back to Raleigh, new role as deputy secretary for Mm. archives and history. But um, I run into people here, you know, walking through town and then they would want to talk and have a conversation about something that had occurred or that had emerged in those conversations that we've had. Mm -hmm. So it's been great for Marcus and I to be in conversation with you all, too. Uh, As you all know, I'm a quoter. We started this show out with a quote, a quote from Nelson Mandela, who's one of my favorite uh, political figures in in the last century. I think someone who moved his country, moved all of us in in remarkable ways. But I've often quoted Edmund Burke as well. Mm -hmm. And this is kind of paraphrase of Burke. Quote, which is that the world belongs to the living, the dead, and yet those yet to come, that we're all participate in this great historical continuity. Mm-hmm. So we're in conversation with each other. And Marcus, when I think about that quote, and knowing that Thomas is going to join us here in a few minutes in this conversation, you know, when he called and he reached out to me about sitting down and maybe having a conversation with you and I for the uh, interview for the Mountain Express, he did say to me, and you all in the audience know that I've become this kind of big, you know, student of Alexis de Tocqueville. <laughs> and so Thomas said to me, if Alexis de Tocqueville's name does not come up in this interview, I'm going to be disappointed. <laughs> so I tried not to disappoint him with that. So I'm going to bring up Tocqueville here, you know, and Tocqueville, I think, uh, you know, there's a kind of a natural, uh, in my opinion, as I look at Writers like Edmund Burke, and then later on, Alexis de Tocqueville. There's this kind of natural kind of uh, continuity between these writers. But one of his criticisms of us was that we were not necessarily given in this country, in this new American democracy, given to having a deep knowledge of the past. I'd like to think that as you read Democracy in America and what Tocqueville had to say, that he was imagining that as America grew older, that that would change. And I think we're in a moment right now as we get ready for the 250th anniversary of the American Revolution to begin to think about the past and what were the founding ideals. And we'll bring up Mitch Landrieu, who addressed that at one point. Uh, in one show that we did with him, but as we kind of move on here, I'd like to bring Thomas on in. Thomas Calder, writer for The Mountain Express, also an author, and I told him uh, just before we got started today that I'm a bit that I'm a bit jealous uh, of the fact that um, he has already published a book. I've not gotten mine done yet, um, but his book, which is fiction, a novel, uh, "The Wind Under the Door," some of you may have seen this, is out. And when we come back from break we're going to bring Thomas into the show. So stay with us in just a minute. So welcome back. This is the Waters and Harvey Show. We're here at Blue Ridge Public Radio. Marcus and I are kind of in conversation with each other talking about uh, this being the 100th episode of the Waters and Harvey Show, which is kind of a celebratory moment for us and, and for many of you because we've heard from some of you. But we also have as our guest Thomas Calder, writer for the Mountain Express, author of The Wind Under the Door. And the reason why I wanted to bring Marcus, uh, not Thomas, into this conversation today was because Marcus and I had the opportunity to see sit for an interview with thomas for the mountain express in preparation for this event you know the coming 100th show and it was a great conversation so thomas thank you for joining us here it's good to have you here say hello
2: it's great to be here thank you very much it's (laughs) an honor i gotta say it's kind of surreal um i'm usually not in air conditioning when i hear you guys you're in my ear i'm like doing yard work (laughs) so the whole time i've been listening i'm like i should be weeding right now (laughs) taking out some grass for the garden um so, yeah, it's a pleasure. It's an honor. It's, I'm excited to be here. Well,
0: yeah. we're so glad to have you here. And Marcus and I both are thrilled. And we, we, we just have to go back and just think about it. We had a great time uh, with you before we kind of get into talking about unpacking some of the things that we discussed in, in the conversation we had with you. You know, we, we, Marcus and I kind of put out a question to all of you in, in preparation for the show about what was the meaning of the show? What, sh- what was the meaning of the show to you? What meaning does it have to you? How has it impacted your thinking? And we we were grateful to get some comments from a few people. One person has been a guest on the show, um, uh, Thomas, uh, Chris Cooper, Dr. Chris Cooper, out at Western Carolina University. It's always great to have uh, Chris on on the show. I mean, he's a... Great conversationalist, great storyteller. And and Thomas, um, not Thomas, but Chris wrote in, he sent us an email, in, and in response to those questions, what has the show meant to you? He wrote, the Waters and Harvey show has meant an opportunity to think about people over politics. What's just beneath the surface, that's underneath the surface, instead of what is obvious and what can be instead of what is. Marcus, I really did appreciate that comment coming in from uh, from Chris. And Thomas, your thoughts, when you hear, because you know Chris as well, um, yes. and when you hear that, I got a sense when Marcus and I were in conversation with you that you shared that sentiment that kind of Chris expressed.
2: Yeah. What I also appreciate about the show is like, and you guys were talking about communication and the online, digital, and the, con- the, the art of conversation and um, sustained conversation versus I think so many people are accustomed to um, cable news and mm. just talking about something for 10 minute and a half for a a, a, a little moment on television and then the issue goes away. What I appreciate about your show is you guys keep coming back to certain issues, certain topics, and you really want to explore it. And you're obviously allowing yourselves as well as your guests, as well as your audience to think on things for an extended period of time Mm -hmm. and kind of to examine it from all different angles and get that nuance that um, as a Student of history, as uh, someone with background in literature, I, I just appreciate that, that ability to continue to have those conversations and not just drop them and move on to the next topic yeah. that may or may not yeah. be of great significance. Yeah, yeah. And something, something I'm, I'm reminded
1: of, Thomas, that uh, both Darren and I live with, <laughs> I think, mean, as, as scholars, is that uh, we, we tend to be interested in, in issues that haunt us. <laughs> right. So in other words, you know, we we, we make a choice to live with ghosts right. all the time. And I think that's one way of of explaining why these these issues um, uh, sort of tend to reemerge on the show um, from different vectors. Right. From different vantage points. Uh, and that leads me to 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 wonder, uh, Chris, um, what can, can you say a bit more about what what what. Motivated your interest in wanting to write a piece um, on on our show. Darren mentioned that we uh, we did an interview with you recently, which was which I think was a lot of fun. Um, I was able to finally be honest about what I think about <laughs> you. <Darren>. <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking, but yeah, it's So so, any thoughts about what 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 led you to say let me let me write about this show?
2: Well, part of it is I'm a fan of the show, mm. um, and I've been kind of hounding Darren for the last like five years at least (laughs) for various things. Um, So as I was listening to the show, doing my yard work, you know, you guys would keep mentioning that the 100th was coming up, and it seemed like a a big deal, a celebration. Mm. Um, And I wanted to get a chance, really, just to have uh, my own private Waters and Harvey show (laughs) experience. Um, But I I think it turned out to be more than you, for. (laughs) I I loved every minute of it. I really had a great time. Um, And that was truly, I wanted to be part of, you know, Uh, bring other people in who might not be listening to the show who may read uh, mountain express i do think the paper also our mission kind of runs parallel and overlaps with a lot of what you guys are doing Mm -hmm. as far as just encouraging community conversation ongoing conversation um, and looking at things not just dropping things like Picking it up and dropping it, but really exploring it. And I think the, the whole the haunting and self reflection are two things mm-hmm. that come up a lot in the show. Mm-hmm. And those are two topics that, as a as a writer, as a fiction writer in particular, but also as a, a fan of history, just mm-hmm. those are two issues that I think are really important and really interesting. Right. Um, so I wanted to talk more to you guys. about Well,
0: that. I can echo Marcus and say, Thomas, we deeply enjoyed the conversation. And um, and what's interesting for you all in the audiences, um, and and we are continue to say we're so grateful to have so many of you who, who are faithful listeners to the show, kind of like Thomas is that, um, you know, we, we come into the studio, our uh, we can call our home offices our studio right mm-hmm. we come in with an outline of what the show is going to be but it quickly goes out the door <laughs> because <laughs> conversation and conversations really are su- supposed to unfold naturally anyway but Marcus kind of and I kind of keep the, kind of the show outline in front of us just as a guide and then Marcus is, has this uh th- this recurring fear of dead air right. so you know if 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 he thinks that the air is about to go dead he kicks me in the shin <laughs> know. you know so there's, there's this back and forth but this the outline helps us and and even now as i'm looking at the outline i'm looking at the things that we have and we pack a lot in here and i think academics have a tendency to do that it's kind of overkill we have more than we actually have time to actually cover but one of the things that we want to talk with you about is some of your favorite shows, but before we do that, I'm thinking about the conversations, the territory that we've covered. We've covered a mm-hmm. lot of territory in these 100 shows. Marcus, I was thinking about the show that we did explore Native American history, mm-hmm. um, and we did that with Dr. Trey Ackock. Uh, we had the State of Black Asheville, talking about what was going on here in the community of Asheville with Dr. Dwight Mullen, who's now retired from the university. And I know he stays very active in the community here, but he even grew that project to look at the state of black North Carolina Um, and one year when we did the African Americans in Western North Carolina conference um, he brought in scholars from I know from down in Greensboro and Winston Salem from some of North Carolina's great historically black colleges and universities to kind of engage in a conversation about African American life across the state. I'm now getting a chance to kind of see that with a bird's eye view traveling across our great state um, looking at what is going on not only in African American communities but community in general. I also think about the the, um, the conversation that we had with uh, Diane Tower-Jones and Seku Coleman early on, Marcus, about yeah. Beneath the Veneer and looking at what's mm-hmm. going on underneath the surface, especially here uh, in Asheville, where their focus was. So there have been a lot of conversations that we've had, great conversations with David Blight, with uh, Commissioner, Buckham County Commissioner here, um, Alfred Whitesides, who was a trailblazer in this community, as was uh, attorney James Ferguson, one of the leading civil rights attorneys in the state. So we, well, in the country, but we've, we've had all of these kind of far-reaching conversations. But that gives me a chance that, you know, um, Thomas gives both Marcus and I a chance to, to to ask you, what are some of the favorite shows uh, as you think about, um, as you know you go through the recesses of your mind, what stands out to you?
2: Before I get to that, I did want to offer um, listeners and those who've read the article that I wrote about the, the the 100th episode which at the time obviously i did not know i would be part of um you were mentioning just you pack a lot in and i was looking back over our transcript and we had a transcript of 11,046 words and the article itself was 1,168 words so a significant uh, amount of the conversation couldn't get into the article obviously (laughs) due to the space limitations Um, but i feel like i got a lot of the the heart of the conversation Mm -hmm. in there but there is a topic i'd like to speak more to you guys about at some point during today's show um but going back to your question about favorite shows i was listening again last night um before my miami heat got knocked just beat up by the 76ers um uh to william turner uh the the conversation you had and i thought your introduction was incredibly powerful um, Mm of just asking why kind of the shame of why George Floyd in this moment is the awakening for many and you brought it back to lynching and the history and the fact and The gruesome history, obviously, Mm -hmm. of the dismemberment and the fact that these were uh, events that Mm -hmm. were promoted at churches and uh, large numbers of white people would come to watch. Um, I thought that introduction was super powerful. And then I've had the opportunity and privilege of interviewing uh, Dr. Turner for an article Mm -hmm. I wrote years ago. He did a talk at UNCA (laughs) that you were part of. and he's just got so much energy and so much knowledge, obviously. So it was good to revisit and hear him. Uh, the talk he gave at UNC was just like bouncing off the walls. Mm-hmm. Like he's, and we connected, he and I, because we both, he's in Houston. I was living in Houston at one point. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the David Blight conversation, I revisited actually before I interviewed you guys for the article, um, just to re- re- revisit that. Uh, that was the 30 minutes segment, mm-hmm. um, and I got to hear him speak at Lenore Rhine years ago, so that was a, a treasure. And then just, you know, locals, the Steve Nashes. Um, Kimberly Floyd, mm-hmm. um, and then the, the larger conversations that you've had with multiple um, community members about reparations, about Vance Monument. Um, it's just uh, you know, as a as a person who loves local history in particular, but history in general, it's just a beautiful show. Kind of runs see, the gamut, a lot of territory.
0: Doctor Turner, <laughs> Doctor Turner, <laughs> <laughs> he's a showman too. He's And those of you who have not had opportunity <laughs> to hear him speak. Uh, in, in person you know if, if you get the chance you should yeah. it, just like David Blight David Blight is a showman as well and uh, just a great storyteller different kind of so, showman but still yeah. a it Yeah, it is
1: yeah. oh yeah <laughs> definitely yeah and you know you you know, so, so you know, thinking about shows we've done, done in the past I think also about the show with former New Orleans Mayor Mitch Landrieu and in fact we're going to pause for a moment to remind our listeners of some of the important points that, uh, that Mitch had to say so we'll pause for a moment here mm-hmm
3: you know, I, I stand on the shoulders of a lot of people. I, I can't. I'm 60 years old now. My wife and I have five children. I can't really remember anything in my life that I did on my own. Mm-hmm. I, I just can't. I, I can't. I can't think of a thought that I had that somebody else didn't contribute to and that or uh, people who went before me whose shoulders I stood on. My dad served as a, as, a, as a state legislator, as a mayor and secretary of Jimmy Carter's cabinet. My sister Mary was a United States senator. My sister Madeline was a judge. Between the between the three of us and others, we have 110 years of elected service to the country, and it's been a blessing. I mean, it really has been an incredible opportunity because it forces you to get outside of yourself Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and to see other people Mm -hmm. and to hear other people. And your life gets enriched by the connection that you have to all the incredible people that you can meet.
0: Uh, you know Marcus yeah, uh, you know, I'm glad we played that clip um and you know, I mentioned i think before that uh, you know um and it may have been on another uh, another occasion that um that even Martin Luther King himself, you know, was a great historian. You know, he thought about the people who had come before him and then we stood on these shoulders. I quoted Bert early on and that clip that um, that we had selected from that conversation with Mitch I think was a rich one because he talks about the shoulders that we kind of stand upon and understanding the richness of the American past. And so I don't know what else. in Thomas, if there's a comment you want to make about what you heard Mitch saying there. And Mitch, that show actually turned into the Mitch Landrew show. Right? He, he really <laughs> (laughs) took that one over
2: (laughs) i just think um, something you guys talk about a lot on the show is just mythology and the the american mythology and he's touching there on just like the self-made versus uh, standing on the shoulders of (laughs) others and i'm just fascinated by that conversation in particular that you guys have a lot because i do think that the mythology of the self-made just leads to so much toxicity and um just it's it's a it's a thing that is then used to excuse poor behavior and mm-hmm. terrible behavior, um, and that's that's a topic that I think is so important to continue to discuss. Mm-hmm. And you see how it gets just warped, um, where you can be someone who inherits a million dollars and still say you're a self-made person or a loan of a million. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um,
1: yeah and, and this this point, this idea of, of being self-made, um, I, I think it's just so important to to. Recognize this because you know thinking about American mythologies, Thomas. It seems to me that this I, this this myth of of really anyone being self made um, is really at the the heart of the American mythos, right? The idea that this is even this is even a phenomenon, mm-hmm. and um, you know I, I think part of what Mitch is 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 helping us to see is that that is probably never the case, right? right? I mean, as much as we might want to think it is um it's it's never the case i mean there are there are there there were cases during um the period of slavery in the united states where uh white white slave owners um whose wealth had been built upon you know the backs of slaves were running around calling themselves self-made men <laughs> When their bodies themselves had done nothing to produce the wealth that they now enjoyed as a result of of the labor of labor produced by other bodies, and so yeah so so what does it mean? What would it mean um for the country to reimagine itself um, in a way that doesn't center this trope of being self made and and I think that would be a risky a risky endeavor because it seems to me that this whole, this myth of American exceptionalism Mm -hmm. is very much tethered to this idea of being self-made. But if but if that idea goes away, is America exceptional anymore?
0: Right. (laughs) Right. Right. Um, So anyway, this is a very important point to, I think, reflect on. It really is. And, you know, Marcus, for a while, you know, I've been reading one of my favorite writers is George Packer, who writes Mm -hmm. for the Atlantic uh, magazine. He's written a number of books, just a brilliant writer. And Packer's last book, which was entitled "The the last best hope America in crisis and renewal, kind of with me connects with that show that we did with uh, Mitch Landrieu. Um, because in that body of shows, we had been asking, you and I had been asking a series of questions that were resonating with a lot of people who listened to the show with many members of the audience. Those two questions, are, well, they became three questions. question mm-hmm. was, who are we and who do we wish to be? And Marcus, you threw another question in there, mm-hmm. in, the, in the mix, which was, is there yeah. a we? And we think about the uh, American Constitution it begins with these words, we, the people, you know, so when are we, we, and this is a question I think that will be recurring and will be coming back to not only on this show, but I'm hoping that we'll be thinking about it at least as North Carolinians and hopefully as Americans, as we think about the 250th anniversary of the American Revolution and the ideals that actually founded the country. So Mitch actually said, you know, this is the only country that was founded on an ideal, right? So there was, he made that comment in that show. But there was another quote that I think, con- uh, well, another piece our segment of that show that connects that really connects with um, with those questions that you and I had mm-hmm. been asking. And um, so we want to play that one, too, if we can, because, you know, he was taking on some major challenges in New Orleans when he was mm-hmm. there. So if we can bring up that other that other segment from that show with Mitch.
3: I said we cannot do this anymore. Mm. Not in my city. And not anywhere in the country. And we are gonna we are gonna lean forward, and stand on the shoulders of the community that had been asking us. And we're gonna ask people to face this question, and we're gonna make them answer it. And if we get it right, we should take them down because it doesn't reflect who we are as a people. It didn't reflect our history. It was a historical lie. It was the wrong thing to revere, and it was in, it was incomprehensible to me. And Malia, I'm glad you're on the phone because in the speech that I gave about it. It actually references a true story that a mother told me about trying to explain it to her daughter. And so there's a part in the speech that I give saying, imagine, it, so this is Wenton saying, look at it from my perspective. I turn that perspective into the perspective of a 12 year old African-American female looking up at Robert E. Lee. And I ask the question, when she looks at him, do you think she thinks her future is bright? Mm-hmm. Do you think that she thinks Robert Lee, Robert Lee is there to lift her up or to push her down? Mm-hmm. So if we're asking ourselves, where is the future? And we're asking ourselves, what are we doing to encourage the young people to rise into their responsibility and their beauty and, the, and and everything that they have? Do you think that's a plus or a minus? And if that's true, that he's pushing her down, what what's the city of New Orleans going to look like mm-hmm. in, in 2030 or 2040? No major company in America is going to want to come hang out in a southern town that reveres the Confederacy. And this is absolutely true. So if you don't care about this as a matter of justice, you better start caring about it as a matter of economic possibility, because no company in America who needs a diverse workforce is going to want to be hanging out in any town that has the tint or hint that white supremacy has anything other than, is anything other than a memory never to be repeated. Well, you're
0: listening to The Waters and Harvey Show here at Blue Ridge Public Radio. Marcus and I will be right back in a moment. You're listening to The Waters and Harvey Show here at Blue Ridge Public Radio. Marcus and I are in conversation with Thomas Calder. You've been listening to some clips from past shows that we've done because we're celebrating uh, the 100th episode of, of The Waters and Harvey Show, which this show is. And so you just heard, uh, Marcus, the audience just had a chance, and we had a chance to listen to it here in the studio as well. Uh, another clip from that show with Mitch Andrew, which was one of my favorite shows. Mm-hmm. It was a deep, rich show. And obviously, he was dealing with the issue of Confederate Monuments in the city of New Orleans, and so he was talking about how they were engaging it, and it really, to me, that resonated around those questions that you and I have been asking about who are we and who do we wish to be. And I feel like Mitch was kind of pulling those up. In fact, at one point in that show, he did raise those questions. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, he
1: he made a point um, about the monument, saying that. Um, simply arguing that they should be taken down because they they don't really reflect who we are, right? Here, mm-hmm. this idea of we is uh, rearing its its head again, but it makes me wonder: um, uh, is there was there not a way in which those monuments did very much reflect the 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 we um, sort of. Constructed within the dominant American imaginary, I mean, I think they were very much reflective of the principal artificers of the American story, mm-hmm. um, which was um, an exclusive group, <laughs> right? Uh, restricted to, um, you know, going back, you know, to the nineteenth century before the Civil War, the sort of you know white landed gentry, <laughs> right? Uh, the educated, so on and so forth. So, I, I think with those with those Confederate monuments. And those kind of sort of of monuments to America's slaveocracy. I think what those monuments do reflect is a very particular we. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not that they don't reflect who we are. They do kind of reflect what America has been Mm -hmm. and kind of still what America is, in a sense. Mm -hmm. The question is um what to do with that older we right right is, is it possible to reimagine that in a way that 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 dislodges or decenters or displaces that older we that to me is the question yeah right I think it's I, I think we have to be honest when we when we in thinking about the 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 important historical and social role played by those monuments vis-a-vis how America imagined itself um because to me the, the two are, you know they're, they're very Absolutely very integri- mm-hmm. integrally related i think and so that to me is is a hard is a hard truth that mitch's comments to, for me, sort of indirectly push us to deal with. Them. <laughs> All
0: right. And Thomas, I mean, yeah. I want to give you an opportunity to share your thoughts as
1: well.
2: Yeah, uh, I'm just listening and thinking about right from like 1890 to 1950. Who were we in that time right. period when these monuments yeah. were going up, and what was the story that we, in this case, the white? Uh, citizens what were we telling ourselves and what were the stories that we were promoting and how were we reimagining those stories when it comes to the confederacy in particular but you could see that in the present day as well and you could see it at the lightning speed in which narratives start to turn and take on their new a new story i'm thinking specifically of like january 6th Mm -hmm. like how those narratives start one way and then they morph within a couple of weeks months, you know, um, so you can imagine then the same thing going on for an extended period um, with a much more collective backing behind them mm-hmm. as far as getting those stories in the books and reading through the ways that the the Civil War was taught um, afterwards mm-hmm. uh, to mm-hmm. students and the questions and I, one that sticks out in particular was about the Ku Klux Klan and what they were you know formed for, and it was to protect Absolutely. uh the white citizens, so you're just looking at that stuff and thinking about how narrative influences and changes the way groups create conversations right, right. you 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 are you are all both making very key points here,
0: and you know one of the things is, uh, with this show too, Marcus, I want to point out that you and I have always been amazed by is how quickly the time flies. Right, it goes really fast. There's so much that we want to do in this uh, in this particular show. We were reminiscing about some other shows that we had done. Uh, early on, we did a show with Johnny Davis, former NBA basketball star, uh, drafted to the Portland Trail Blazers in the 1970s. He had one of the longest careers with the NBA, both as a player. And And then as a coach, um, 38 years with the NBA in different, uh, uh, different roles, he and his wife retired to Asheville right we had to, I, both of you and i had the opportunity to develop a relationship with johnny and johnny is this one of these people who's very focused on community development um and opportunities and and that was a rich conversation we encourage you to go back and um and actually listen to some of the some of the things that came out of that show that he talked about and especially i think that are important as children are as uh, the youth our younger people think about mm-hmm. what their futures will be he's like we need to broaden our, our our idea of what is possible um, uh, as as a profession, as we think about what is possible as we. I also, Marcus, want to take the time to think about the conversation that you and I had with uh, Audrey and Frank Peterman, who are big advocates for the national park system, Um, two people who had intended to retire to Belize when they they retired, and then decided, nope, they were going to come back to the United States after they were asked a question in Belize about what is the United States really like, and especially the national parks. And they had never toured the national parks, so they decided to buy an RV and tour all of the national parks. Mark's what stood out to me in that conversation with them, and I, I'll point out here that their work was uh, actually... Um, rewarded and actually acknowledged by President Obama when he was in office. But one of the things that she said, she talked about, they both talked about how diverse we are becoming, and the, the demographics of the country are shifting, we're becoming much more diverse, and how we need to kind of broaden who the we is to give people ownership and a stake in the future of the country. And she was talking about the national park system, thinking that we support our national parks, and I think about the state park system here in North Carolina. Carolina, we would support these uh, parks, these sport, important spaces, through the tax dollars of the American uh, of the American public. So, if we want people to feel that they have a stake, we have to do that now. We need to change the narratives that we're telling about who we are. Right. So, that was one of those rich conversations as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I, as I'm just thinking about
1: you know a, a thing that we've wrestled with in this on this show over and over again which is the the importance of of, of story uh when i think about uh, the the story that has been deployed in order to establish the sense of american identity um largely along white lines as as thomas um suggested earlier um when i think about that i also think about the ways in which that story has reconfigured itself in an effort to essentially preserve itself mm-hmm. right so there's a way in which um sort of new stories that are still connected to the old story right are sort of sent out to do particular kinds of work right to protect against the intrusion of new stories that might not be uh, that aren't <laughs> really um uh or, or that or that that might challenge that that original sort of um uh mythological uh narrative and so i think we have to also deal with the fact that the introduction of new stories or the writing of new stories will involve conflict mm-hmm. i mean this is not a you know a, a peaceful kumbaya kind of process i mean it is a kind of um i i i, I will stop short of saying warfare but it is it is a kind of Intensive, conflictual process that I think you know we, we have to be courageous about 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 dealing with, right? So yeah, so just so I'm thinking about that
0: in, in, in response to, to Thomas's. Uh, remarks a few moments ago well yeah. Marcus you know time is flying on us and we don't want to end this show without talking about one of our at least you know <laughs> you you are an expert on jazz right <laughs> no, we, we, have talk, we have talked we have talked about jazz on the show a lot and and when we did that conversation well yeah when we had that conversation with Thomas um you know he he was asking us about our mission and remember um uh, your former advisor dissertation oh, yes, advisor yeah. um Diane's uh you, yeah, remind her, Diane Stewart. Stewart. Mm-hmm. Diane Stewart. Diane. We had her on the show a couple of times when we were at WRES and then here at Blue Ridge Public Radio. And when we did the show and she was in the studio with us, she did say it's like watching jazz. Yeah, you know, it it it's kind of uh, watching you guys kind of go back and mm-hmm. forth. And so Thomas did ask us. You know, he gave me. An, uh, he asked a question that gave me an opportunity to kind of talk about that and say that what we try to do with the show is, and this is a quote from his story, we try to bring a little soul. And a little blues and jazz to the conversation, and a couple of my favorite writers, you know Stanley Crouch, uh, who died last year. Uh, Stanley Crouch, a social critic, uh, wrote about jazz and blues in America. These two traditional art, uh, original art forms. Um, Albert Murray has written about uh, mm-hmm. the blues, and he makes a statement in one of his books, I think, The Omni Americans, that we use the blues to get over the blues. Mm-hmm. Who, who is, who's feeling miserable and sad? Once you've heard a blues song, you know it's it's the blues, but you use the blues to get over. It. So he kind of describes Catholic and constructed. Yeah, he yeah. describes the founding fathers in the form of government that was constructed to give freedom, but at the off at the same time of, of some distrust in giving too much freedom. He looked at them kind of as blues people. You know, they, they there was a form of blues that you've got to use the blues to get over the blues. We had the opportunity to develop a relationship with the core. You know, our theme music for the show. We went through a, a number of iterations uh, of theme music for the show. Used Herbie Hancock for, for a while, One of my faves. But we ended up with, uh, <laughs> you know, with with the core. We had a conversation yeah. with them on the show when we introduced Leroy, which yeah. is the name of the song uh, that we, uh, the piece that we used to open the show. You know, Marcus, anything you want to say about jazz and just the blues uh, before? Yeah, we, I, I, you end know, this, show. this, you know, as as a. As uh,
1: I, I I would not say that I'm a jazz expert. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want our <laughs> listeners thinking that I'm some uh, um, authority, but uh, it is it is a genre that is very close to my heart, um, and I think it's it it provides a means of making uh, making sense of a lot of what of a lot of the complexity that we experience as human beings. Um, I, I think it's a part of what is unique about this genre is that even though it is very much I think birthed within the cauldron of the african-american artistic tradition in the united states um it is nonetheless um an art form that i think transcends racial lines gender lines class lines social lines cultural lines in its ability to communicate to touch to transform mm-hmm. to create and so for the, for those reasons jazz is jazz is really really special to me. Um and I think that Diane is correct. There is something about the way that we communicate that for me is reminiscent of the process of creating a jazz composition, right? It's there's something it, it every every aspect um it is not mapped out, right? You don't always know how things are going to go from moment to moment. I mean, you have a basic idea, but you have to exercise the the courage to sort of let the process unfold Mm -hmm. and trust that you can follow the process (laughs) and you and I I think have that have that kind of that kind of dynamic and so um, I also think that jazz is important um, for understanding the the practice of conversation Mm -hmm. right I think there's something there's something fundamentally um, um, that there's something very similar between uh, the, the work of trying to build a relationship with other people and the kind of creative process that goes into making a jazz composition. Mm-hmm. And so I think as our listeners think about, well, well, well what do they mean by conversation? What, you know, what, what does it mean to practice conversation? What does it mean to practice relationship? Listen to jazz music. right? Right. Listen to Herbie Hancock. Listen to the core. Mm-hmm. Um, and you'll begin, you know, the more you hear it, the more you sort of understand that there's there's a connection between how these different instruments talk to each other. Mm-hmm. And how you know the, the the complexity the the evolution involved in that, there's a connection between that and the complexities involved in building human to human relationship, mm-hmm. and so you know I, I just can't say it enough <laughs> about <laughs> about jazz um, as uh, along that line you know, yeah. so
0: when I think about the show, I think about uh, the state of North Carolina, I, know, I think about. Yeah. This country jazz comes to mind. You know, different people doing different yeah. things, but you find some harmony and rhythm in there somehow. But trust, as you said, is key yeah. to that. you got to trust one another to perform. And I think what's interesting about jazz, Marcus, is that never – the performance of in any one piece is never the, the same. same. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's always something different that's being done, but it comes out so magically beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, I think also uh, here thinking about Stanley Crouch, another you know, the term that he used to, to describe America is gumbo, thinking about yeah, Mitch, the great American gumbo. You know, you put all of these things together, but it produces something that is very tasty. You know, mm-hmm. so as we think about America, I think this is a good way for us to kind of maybe think about our future as jazz or as blues as we're thinking about who it is we are and who we want to be. One of the things that Marcus and I want to do and Thomas we want to thank you again for being indeed with us uh, just to celebrate this 100th show. This has been fun. I know we've kind of gone the gamut. I mean we haven't even covered uh, a a drop of the shows that we've done Marcus and maybe we can continue to talk about others as we do more shows because we will continue this process for as long as uh, as we can we've had so much fun doing it but we wanted to give an opportunity to play a little bit more of the music this time you don't get a chance to hear it of the theme music but before we do that Marcus and I want to thank you all in the audience for uh for continuing to engage with us, continuing to listen. And we're going to look forward to being in continue, continued conversation with you all as we kind of move forward. We want to hear from you as well. And before we do go out, I just want to, Marcus and I want to remember uh, to remind you once again that the Watterson Harvey Show is produced at Blue Ridge Public Radio in Asheville, North Carolina, in partnership with the Institute for Promotion of Human Understanding.
1: And you can listen to our podcast on BPR.org, the BPR and NPR One mobile
0: apps, and on Apple Podcasts and Google Play. And you can follow us and get in touch on Facebook as you do, and follow us on Twitter or write us at WHShow at BPR.org. And before we go and the music comes on, we want to thank Matt Bush for being a part of this Absolutely. project. The whole thank team, you, Matt. the whole team here at Blue Ridge Public Radio, but Matt in particular, he's done a wonderful job in putting these shows Absolutely. together. So thank you, Matt. Thank you, Matt. <laughs>